Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And on this podcast, we never stop duning. So it's Dune yet again. This is part two of the Dune series that we started earlier this week. Uh, so in the last episode, we talked about the Bene Gesserit and a bit about the neuroscience of pain. And uh, today we're here to talk about what more Bene Gesserit, maybe some Spacing Guild stuff. Yep, that's right. We're going to pick up uh, where we left off with the Bene Gesserit, and then we're going to move on to the Spacing Guild. Um, and I, I think the place I'd like to start is to come back to something we touched on in last episode, and that is the idea that the Bene Gesserit are chiefly concerned with politics. Right. Now, we offered some caveats about that in the last episode in that we often hear the word politics and think of like electoral democratic politics. Uh, the political situation in the Dune universe is is not so lucky uh, to, to have uh, democratic electoral politics. They've got some kind of weird um, hybrid uh, uh, technological feudalism that has like a, an, an emperor on top. And then there are uh, there's like an aristocracy of, of landed nobles, essentially houses who control planets as their fiefdoms. And then there's also a, a pretty large input from uh, trade guilds, primarily the spacing guild, which controls the monopoly over the, the economy of interstellar travel. Yeah. So um, yeah, if you need a if you need a refresh, uh, certainly we went over the the, the world of Dune in the last episode. Uh, so go back and listen to that one if you you didn't have a chance to. So one of the books that I was looking at for this uh, was it was another fun uh, uh, collection of of Dune uh, essays. Uh, it was a book uh, titled Dune and Philosophy, and in it, philosophy professor Jeffrey Nicholas, who also edited the book. Uh, he examines the, the topic of the, the Bene Gesserit in facing the Gamjabar test. He touches, you know, on the point that they that they make in this, you know, conversation between um, uh, Paul and the Reverend Mother that the, the Bene Gesserit are concerned with politics. But uh, Nicholas points out that that what we're talking about here with politics is politics in Aristotle's sense of the world word. Um, uh, po- political science, one of the three sciences he outlined alongside contemplative science, which would have included both physics and metaphysics, and practical science. So there's a lot of talk about tripods uh, in uh, you know in the the order of of things in Dune, um, <laughs> and and so in, in a way that kind of matches up, I guess, very loosely with with Aristotle's uh, three pronged approach uh, to understanding the universe. Man, I have not looked at that philosophy of Dune book, but uh, that sounds interesting. So, does it get into like the what is the philosophical outlook of Baron Harkonnen and stuff? You know, is, it, is he a Hobbesian? <laughs> um, yeah, there's a lot of fun stuff in there. Yeah, there's definitely some Hobbes. I know I'll touch on some Hobbes here in a bit, uh, but there's also um, there's also one. Let's see, what is it? Uh, uh, I think it's something like, uh, the, you know, basically like one article walks through the various houses and factions and talks about how they would have been thought of by, uh, say, Socrates or whoever. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a, it's a fun read. Uh, so, you know, one of the things about uh, uh, Aristotle is is that uh, there is a, there's a quote that's often attributed uh, to him, uh, the pretty famous uh, Aristotle quote, man is by nature a political animal. Yeah, and I think. This is an interesting quote, partially in how I think it is often misunderstood, because I think a lot of times people take that quote to mean 
that that Aristotle was saying that man is the only political animal, which uh, he mm-hmm. he does not mean. He actually mentions other animals as political animals as well. Yeah, he he also refers to you know you social insects and so forth as uh, as being political animals. Uh, though, though though again, one of the reasons this is interesting to come back to this is because the Bene Gesserit are big about talking about the difference between humans and animals, and, and, and given their focus on politics, uh, we can't help but go in this direction. Okay, but so what did he mean by saying this then? Well, I was reading a little bit more about this, and apparently this is this is an area where you can get into some amount of debate, and we're not going to go. Uh, there's this certain amount of, um, of philosophical back and forth on this, but I was looking at a paper from Cheryl E. Abadi, uh, and it was uh, uh, the, the article "Higher and Lower Political Animals," published in the Journal of Animal Ethics in 2016. And she writes that that Aristotle considered man's impulse towards partnership with others to be the most important, and that it is only through these partnerships that happiness is possible. Uh, so, I mean, it sounds to me like, you know, that means that uh, the Bene Gesserit are all about happiness, obviously, um, <laughs> right, 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 right up their alley. And uh, Aristotle broke this down across the, the different dimensions um, of, um, of our interactions with other people at the household level, at the village level. And then at the what he considered kind of the ultimate level, uh, the, the polis, uh, a collection of human beings who live together through the creation of laws, allowing them all to survive and flourish. And this is where we get politics as the, the word politics. I think there's a pretty good case to be made that Aristotle is on to something here about uh, the fundamental nature of humankind that sort of uh, that what makes us really special is our ability to cooperate with one another. And it's not mm-hmm. that other animals lack the ability to cooperate with one another. I mean, you might say that, say, like a eusocial insect colony coordinates their activities even better than humans can. Uh, but humans have have much richer ways of co- cooperating with one another than even, say, you social insects do because we have things like language, which allow us to very, very minutely coordinate our behaviors and cooperate in, in ways that are uh, have levels of complexity you couldn't really imagine without something like language. Yeah. So Nick, Nicholas, coming back to, to his paper, writes that Aristotle considered politics a place for human practical reason to flourish. So it was the ideal place, not for everyone, but for the best minds to busy themselves. And, um, you know, uh, thinking, thinking again to the Dune universe, it's easy to, to focus on all the um, <laughs> uh, at times dystopian aspects of it and the, the war and the, the intrigue. Uh, but uh, you know, it is a pretty cooperative um, interplanetary uh, uh, empire when you look at it from a certain perspective. You know, I mean, they they have managed to not annihilate each other with atomic weapons. They have this uh, this uh, you know this this um, this treaty in place, um, even though the, there's a great deal of inequality uh, in the Dune universe. Um, they're all the, all these factions are working more or less together. Well, yeah, and I, I think you can see those dualities all throughout real history as well. I mean, mm-hmm. look at any number of empires you could think of, the Roman Empire or the British Empire. I mean, all of these are at the same time kind of marvelous achievements of cooperation and coordination at the same time that they are brutal engines of oppression. Yeah. Now, Abadi discusses the same thing that you mentioned that, you know, some uh, that we discussed just a second ago that, you know, some take Aristotle to mean that non-human animals cannot be political. Others see it uh, as the view that humans are merely more political uh, than any non-human animal. 
Uh, but again, Aristotle puts a great deal of emphasis on language. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, it is language is key to the, the human realm of politics um, in, in good ways and bad ways. Well, yeah, language allows for a, a complexity of coordination that is uh, that that of course can serve both good and bad ends. So it allows for mm-hmm. extremely complex coordination to service of the greater good and to helping one another, but also to uh, you know ever richer layers of deception than than could be imagined by any other kind of animal. Yeah, I mean, I've seen it pointed out that you know one of the things that our language does is it allows us to share. Uh, particular points of view with others, uh, perceptions of, uh, of of what's working, what's not working, of what's bringing us pleasure and what's bringing us pain. Now, uh, I want to come back to the, the the Bene Gesserit distinction of humans and animals. Again, this is you know they're very much of of the mindset: don't be an animal, be a human. Uh, and uh, the, the Reverend Mother tells uh, Paul that the test is about seeing if he is human or not. Um, and the Bene Gesserit training seems to a large degree revolve around the high application of reason in a way that overpowers animal instincts. Again, the, the example that uh, is thrown out is that the animal chews its leg off if it's caught in a trap. But the human, uh, the political animal uh, par excellence, plots and practices politics over the fact of its entrapment. Well, in fact, the very example she gives is one of deception. Remember that he would mm-hmm. uh, feign death in order to attract the trapper and then and then strike out and kill him. Yes. And of course, this is, uh, in a way, this foreshadows what is to come mm-hmm. uh, in the novel Dune, because uh, the, the um, Atreides acquisition of Arrakis is widely seen as a trap. And, and Paul's father um to a, to a, not not entirely by his own choice ends up in the position of the animal that must uh, strike out from the trap in an attempt uh to uh, punish his oppressor uh it ends up not quite working but it's uh, it's uh, again one of the great scenes in the book and uh, and I thought a wonderfully um recreated scene in the the recent film adaptation now, coming back to the philosophy of, of Dune book, uh, Nicholas uses the, the Gamjabar awareness test uh, to make a point uh, about the current state of humanity in our world, uh, the real world, uh, in particular, the environmental peril we face. Um, he says, you know, this, this is the trap. We are the trap, but we are arguably not actually human enough, not aware of our place in the world and our connections to one another uh, to act in the best interest of the city. Uh, quote, Herbert's philosophy of the human warns against two things, being animal and being a slave. As animals, we may be enslaved by our animal desires, but there is a different slavery, being a slave to the machine. The Butlerian Jihad freed humanity. It freed beings from enslavement to machines, and it freed us to develop our human talents. Herbert isn't asking us to abandon our favorite playthings, iPod, computer, and game systems. He's challenging us to find out how to use those toys to live a human life. The warning is not to stagnate. Now, if we're thinking about environmental catastrophe, you know, it, it, it may also seem counterintuitive to think of politics as the answer, obviously. But, uh, but you know, there are more than enough examples in our modern world of political barriers to environmental action. Uh, but, of course, it is through politics, certainly in the Aristotle sense of the word, that anything is done for the greater good of humanity. Yeah, in a very crude sense, I think this analogy works. Doing something about, say, uh, environmental problems, which will eventually cause harm to to lots of people or to everyone, 
may require some kind of initial investment. It's it's sort of like the marshmallow test, mm-hmm. uh, but for you know, but for people as a whole, like can can you actually do the thing that's going to get you a better outcome in the long run if it hurts you a little bit in the short run? And right. a lot of times the answer is no. Now, uh, right after I um, was was looking at this material, I just happened to be watching um, a TEDx talk. Uh, for for other reasons, um, and it's one from uh, Jill Bolt Taylor, author of My Stroke of Insight: A Brain Scientist's Personal Journey. Um, I, I think we've mentioned her on the show before. Uh, she you know had this um, this journey to recover from a stroke and wrote about it. Uh, it, it quite interesting. Uh, but this particular uh, talk was uh, the neuro and uh, anatomical transformation of the teenage brain from 2013. And uh, Taylor's main points in this concern what happens to the teenage brain, but also just the development of the brain in general. And I thought some of her points lined up uh, with a lot of this uh, Bene Gesserit thinking and the concept of Aristotle's politics. Hmm. She points out that we are feeling animals that think, not thinking animals that feel. Uh, and we are, we are all neurocircuitry. That's something that she drives home. And as such... We think thoughts, we then feel emotions based on those thoughts, and then we run physiological responses to those emotions. And uh, for sustained or recurring psychological responses such as anger, we wind up running the same thoughts over and over again to reproduce those same results. Mm, Yeah. And she drives some that, you know, we have, we have an ability to pick and choose what's going on inside of our heads. Uh, and she sums it up by saying, you know, again, we are, we are feeling creatures who think. Uh, we tend to be more concerned with the me rather than the we. Uh, and, and in this, we fall short of the idea of that polis of the, um, of the city uh, that uh, Aristotle writes about. So I think it's interesting to, to think about, like, Political action, coming together, communal responses, planning towards, um, uh, you know, future problems. Is the, the, these are things that, on one hand, they're difficult for individuals to do uh, at times. But on the other hand, like, this is, this is something that humans do excel at. I mean, we're not, we're not uh, you know, we don't have the same level of, of efficiency compared to eusocial insects, certainly. But, um, but it is one of the strengths of humanity that, that you know, virtually anything that we consider great in, uh, in human culture, uh, you know, and in, in, um, in, in the history of our civilizations, uh, it, it has been it is due to people working together and bringing things out of that. But it's also interesting the way that um, the use of politics in the Bene Gesserit sense, I guess, reflects both types of uh, both ways of thinking about the word. So, mm-hmm. On the one hand, you have them sort of uh, executing long-term plans through massive cooperation. You know, they're, they're, they're coordinating activities on a galactic scale uh, to try to serve some goal in the end. But you could also see them as, I, I think quite accurately, ruthless power seekers within a ruthless system. And that those are both true at the same time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, they're they're definitely you know uh, engaging in shadow government uh, conspiracies. They are um, they are manipulating uh, pretty much anyone they come into contact with to certain degrees. But yeah, the, the, then they also have these goals of creating some sort of a a, a human uh, supercomputer uh, that will uh, you know b- bring about some sort of balance uh, and of you know long term success for the human species. But then again, I guess that's that is often if you if you if you look at, um, at at today's politics, I mean that is often the case, right? I mean, there's you'll see politics who yeah have some sort of a 
a particular aim or goal that they talk about that lines up with other people's estimations of, uh, of what could make the world a better place. Um, but then they've also got to play that political game. Uh, and you can, I can, you, know, you can argue, well, they have to play that political game in order to, to do this thing or to attempt to do this thing. But mm-hmm. then you also wonder, like, what is the actual driving force? Is it, is it the, um, the good thing you want to do for the world, the change you want to, you want to enact? Or is it that game and that, um, that's, that continual you know, grasp for power? Well, you know, on, on, on one hand, I... Uh I feel a draw towards optimism. Uh, you know, I, I mm-hmm. want to be optimistic about that kind of project. But I also think that people's real motivating priorities are often determined largely by their habits, by what they do day after day. Mm-hmm. And so if you get in the mindset of, well, I got to play the game in order to uh, achieve some lofty goal that would be for the good of humankind or something, I mean, it, in a way, I guess that is what people must do if they want to achieve those goals through, say, uh, mass action, which has to be coordinated through politics, probably. Uh, but there, I think there's always a risk of, by playing the game, your real values become the playing of the game. What is in furtherance of playing the game? Because that is what you have to do day in and day out. Right, right. So like in the Dune universe, if you're a member of a great house, you you don't want to just be trying to assassinate your rivals just for the sake of assassination. It's just because it's just this is the way politics works. But if that is what you spend day after day doing all the time, I think that ultimately will in, end up defining your main priorities. You know, when, when you're forced to choose between one thing and another, you'll probably choose what's in service of the projects you pursue day after day all the time. Right. All right. Well, why don't we move along to the Spacing Guild? And to uh, uh, to, to set the stage, I thought we might do uh, uh, one of these uh, little readings here. Perhaps we can drop a little ambience uh, uh, into the audio bed here, and uh, we'll hear from the Spacing Guild handbook. Any path that narrows future possibilities may become a lethal trap. Humans are not threading their way through a maze, They scan a vast horizon filled with unique opportunities. The narrowing viewpoint of the maze should appeal only to creatures with their noses buried in the sand. A point of order, wouldn't burying your nose in the sand actually be a good way to inhale a significant amount of spice and thus broaden (laughs) your horizons? Yeah, that's why I thought this was a great quote to start with, because yeah, on one hand, that's the sand. That's where all that spice is. And, um, you know, that's that's what the guild is all about. And then on the other hand, the thing they're saying don't do is the main thing that Paul accuses the spacing guild of doing of, um, you know, of of not considering the vast horizon, uh, but but considering the narrow viewpoint of how to avoid catastrophes in the, the near future and, of course, how to maintain that spice. You know, this quote actually reminds me of something that's brought up in in an essay I'm going to get into in a bit by uh, by a, a NASA JPL navigator who has written about uh, the guild navigators in uh, in Dune. And one of the concepts uh, he talks about in his essay is the difference between uh, calculating a solution to a problem in a best fit fashion or in a first fit fashion. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, th- these are very different approaches you can have. So one says. You, you keep trying to solve the problem until you find the first solution that actually works. 
And the other is you keep trying to solve the problem going through all possible solutions until you have identified the optimal one. And of course, people think, well, you know, going for the best fit path has got to be better, right? Because some, even some successful paths are better than other successful paths. Uh, but he, he outlines the fact that for a lot of real world type scenarios, even if you have supercomputers involved, calculating best fit pathways is sometimes such a monumental calculation task that it's functionally impossible. Mm. So, you know, they're saying, well, be aware of all possibilities, but uh, there's also the possibility that being aware of all possibilities puts you in a paralyzing state of inaction and indecision because you can never finish doing all the calculations. And maybe you would be better to just sort of bury your nose whenever you figure out one path that works, just do that. Anyway, I guess we can keep that in mind as we talk about the Spacing Guild. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, let's uh, let's refresh, though, on the Spacing Guild. Um because uh, uh, certainly if you haven't read the book in a while, you might uh, have forgotten some of this. And the, the Spacing Guild, the, they are present in Dune Part 1, uh, the movie that, that uh, just came out last month. But um, they're not maybe not in the forefront of things. So first of all, as we mentioned earlier, um, this is one of the great mental physical training schools, uh, uh, the, the Spacing Guild. And we're told in Dune that they constituted one leg of the political tripod maintaining the Great Convention. This is the truce among all the great houses and the Imperium that bans atomic weaponry and permits these kind of formal wars of assassination against uh, rulers and key figures. So that way, you know, it's uh, members of great houses that get strategically murdered as opposed to whole populations and planets due to, uh, you know, a catastrophic use of weapons of mass destruction. The other legs of the tripod are the Imperial House and the Landstrad, and the Landstrad is the body representing all of the great houses. Now, by the time of the, of the events in the novel Dune, the Spacing Guild is immensely powerful. They control a monopoly on space travel and transport, as well as interplanetary banking. And so some elements, uh, you, know, you know, like everything in Dune, you can easily think of parallels in, in history. Uh, for instance, the non-military aspects of the Knight Templars is there, as well as, of course, the, the, the East India Company, the Dutch East India Company, um, and, and various other monopolies you can, you can turn to. Like what happens when one group controlled something absolutely or near absolutely? So there's something interesting about the fact that the Spacing Guild uh, has this monopoly on interstellar travel in the Dune universe, which is that, if I understand it correctly, this monopoly is handled in a way that's different than a lot of real-world monopolies, which are maintained in some cases by by force, you know, by <laughs> by uh, like military or paramilitary force, saying like no one else may mm-hmm. may try to compete with with us. Or uh, sometimes by uh, just like wealth inequality by saying like, you know, we're the only uh, kind of company that, that can afford the infrastructure to do this. But in the Dune universe, it seems to be that the monopoly is maintained not by any of these conventional uh, methods, but by having a monopoly on the navigators themselves, a monopoly on expertise. Right. And uh, and I guess the... the- Depending on how you look at the like the nature of the guild navigators, the steersmen, yeah, like the the the, the secrets and the knowledge of their creation, um, you know, to, to whatever extent they are engineered, or to whatever extent they are like a product of mass uh, spice consumption. And then, of course, there are there are you know elements there as well as like it's it's about access to the spice, mm. um, and the the guild definitely values its access to the spice. But uh, one thing I was really thinking about when putting together notes for this episode is 
the power of the guild is, um, you know, just as everything in a sci-fi futuristic world is kind of, uh, uh, you know, blown into, 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 you know, greater proportions and, uh, you know, and all, uh, like the, 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 basically their power is such that if a great house chooses to surrender their planet in one of these, um, these squabbles and wars of assassins, um, they, and, and they want to flee beyond the Imperium, the Spacing Guild will supply that house uh, with just such a far-flung planet or, you know, some territory on a far-flung planet that's called a tupile. And this is actually referenced in the novel uh, when um, uh, the Atreides are trying to figure out what to do uh, about this Harkonnen trap that they've uh, found themselves caught in. And one of the options, which they don't really entertain, is, oh, yeah, we could, by the, you know, do the rules of, um, uh, you know, of, of these various treaties, we can just go to the Spacing Guild and they will take us away to a planet that no one else can get to. Um, <laughs> And, and I love, love this because it, it reminds us that for the guild, this is a true monopoly. And there also there is space beyond the Imperium. But since the guild are the ones who control movement and mapping, they kind of have control over the shape of the physical universe for human beings. Uh, their access to secret worlds and outside space, it almost mirrors, um, you know, theological concepts. Yeah, that's really interesting. And and I mean, this would essentially be a an unprecedented state of affairs in the history of human politics, because normally, you know, if you get exiled, you have to go somewhere where you could be found and there are probably already going to be some people there anyway. Uh, but mm-hmm. in this case, you can get exiled to a place where there's nobody there to begin with and nobody's nobody can ever find you. Yeah, it, it's weird how in this case, it's like a place is not real unless the guild permits you to go there. Yeah. And and in uh, in having this two pile option, it allows people to to basically pass out of the world of human beings in the Imperium and uh, and exist in in another state, almost like they've entered into an afterlife or something. That yeah, that's fascinating. So uh, how did the guild come to learn of the use of spice and navigation? Well, I was reading about this in the Dune Encyclopedia, of course, and they outline a few different possibilities. But the basics seems seem to be that they were perhaps just casting around in the wake of the Great Revolt, in the in the wake of the Butlerian Jihad, looking for just anything that could aid them in navigation. You know, what can we do to enhance human uh, mental capacity in order to help us handle this? And then they discover the spice. Or it's also suggested that perhaps the Bene Gesserit had something to do with this and introduced uh, the spice to them. Um, Now, how do they use the spice? Well, uh, as we come to learn in the Dune series, these steersmen or guild navigators consume just massive amounts of melange, so much that they have been altered into a kind of aquatic mammal that breathes and drinks melange. Now, we in the first novel don't really get a lot of insight into the guild navigators like we don't really see them up close or get their perspective but that's not true in the sequels right like i I think in the second book one of the main characters is a is a guild navigator am i right 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 the the guild navigator that we we actually see in the david lynch um uh, adaptation edric they they basically pulled the yeah yeah they edric they pull him out of the sequel um and uh, you know that's probably one of the most memorable uh, sequences in in that entire film uh-huh. with these very 
very mutanty, um, gothy spacing guild members mm-hmm. uh, bringing out this great tank in which floats this creature that is actually just um, a human being, mm-hmm. uh, but a very uh, exotic form of human being brought on by this uh, intense relationship with the spice. Yeah, uh, I love. Th- I've always thought that was a great choice by Lynch. Uh, so he's like, okay, I'm adapting one of the weirdest novels ever into a big mainstream motion picture, and uh, I think the thing I'm going to do is insert a scene that's even weirder than anything in the book that is not in the book, and uh, put that right at the beginning. It's, I love it. Yeah, I I mean it it's really clear in the the latest adaptation that um uh that uh, the director old DV there he um he really likes the weird. Uh and he 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 likes to linger on on these beautiful weird moments just in the first half of the first novel. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really hope he gets to make Dune Messiah as well. Um which he has said he would like to do as sort of a way to round out the trilogy mm-hmm. because there's so much weird stuff in, in Messiah because that's where you start seeing things like uh, like uh, guild steersmen and um there's also a a face dancer. Uh there yeah, there's wonderful stuff in there. Now, I was reading about the the steersman in um, the Dune Encyclopedia, and I wanted to read this wonderful quote. Whatever faults the Spacing Guild may have had, when the day of the steersman ended, a real beauty passed from the universe. The experience of the steersman, breathing and drinking melange, rocking to the beat of space and time, swaying with the music of the spheres, led in their dance by the pulse of life around them, alive to every note in the pivon, both composed and played by their quartet, is beyond the power of words to describe or the imagination to conceive. And so the Dune Encyclopedia, I think, is pretty pro-Spacing Guild. <laughs> they take a side in the factional struggles. Well, in this, this, I mean, they're really like, look, you know, whatever you have to say about the Spacing Guild, those steersmen, they were, they were doing great. They, <laughs> they, they were just. Uh, 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 I mean, I guess I, I like the idea that it, you know, it, it, it kind of answers the question. Well, why would, why would it? Would you want to be this? Like, why would? Uh, would this be an okay state? Because certainly in the Lynch film, you know, it looks kind of like a nightmare. It looks like some sort of like, well, just this horrible state. Mm-hmm. But if you imagine uh, uh, the guild navigator just, you know, feeling so alive uh, on the spice uh, in that tank, then I guess it uh, it makes sense. But in the uh, the new Dune movie, the, the Villeneuve one, uh, so I wasn't aware when I was watching it that there was a scene where we saw the, the guild steersman, but you you identified that actually they do show up. They're the guys toward the beginning of the movie that are dressed in what looks like a combination of papal vestments and EVA suits. Mm-hmm. Yep. And one of the big telltale signs, of course, is that they have these orange domes over their head. Uh, orange, you know, implying uh, the spice. Um, but yeah, it's easy to miss. In fact, I I noticed that there were, you know, some people online responding to the film and they were like, where was the spacing guild? Um and and yeah, they, you you can you can watch it and think that they don't show up at all, but uh, they they are here, and uh, and I think they'll they'll have a, a bigger role in part two. All right. Well, I thought we should talk maybe a bit about the science of uh, deep space navigation and and how that would apply to the Spacing Guild. And as one of my sources here, I was looking at another essay in that book, The Science of Dune, we mentioned in the last episode. 
this one is called uh, The Spacing Guild, and it's by a guy named John C. Smith, who worked in spaceflight navigation at NASA JPL, the, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Uh, and his bio says that he worked on missions to, I'm not sure what to make of this, to Venus, Mars, and Earth. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that he was part of the Cassini Huygens uh, mission to to Saturn and its moon Titan. Well, I guess you could argue that that like the various satellites that help us study Earth science are missions to Earth. Mm-hmm. That we have to we have to go into orbit to gain that kind of perspective to study our own world. Mm-hmm. I, I wonder it might mean return missions, like uh, attempt to, oh know, yeah yeah when the probe is coming back. That's true because that that too is a navigational feat. Sure. Uh, now, there's one thing that Smith actually mentions right at the end of his essay that I thought was really interesting. I'd never considered this, but it's a piece of historical context uh, that might help us understand a little bit better what was going through Frank Herbert's head when he framed deep space navigation in the way that he did in these novels. So remember that Dune was originally published in 1965, which again is kind of – it's hard to believe. Like it always feels yeah. further in the future than that. Yeah, to to imagine that this this novel came out before Woodstock, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It's strange, but uh, Smith writes, "quote During the time period Dune was written, humanity's exploration of the moon and planets was in its infancy. The first successful flyby ever of another planet was NASA's Mariner Two craft, which encountered Venus in late 1962. In 1965, Mariner 4 became the first craft successfully navigated to encounter Mars. But here's the thing to realize. These were not the only two missions launched at this time. Smith's count is that these two probes, the Mariner 2 arriving at Venus in 1962 and Mariner 4 reaching Mars in 65, were, up to this point, the only two fully successful interplanetary missions out of 20 that had been attempted. Wow. So at, that's, that's, that's impressive. Yeah. I mean, so, because you also have to, we also remind ourselves of like, why do we have Mariner 1 and Mariner 2? It was because it was considered so risky that you, you, we better just make two of them and send them both out. Yeah. Because there's a high probability we're going to lose at least one of them. Right. So, so at the point Herbert was writing, even navigating simply between the planets within our own solar system was a venture characterized mostly by failure. Hmm. And so we today, you know, being able to look back on many decades now of of successful missions, I think in a kind of uh, in a kind of short sighted way, uh, take interplanetary travel, or at least of, of uh, uncrewed probes, kind of for granted, and in a way that we really shouldn't, like not realizing. Mm-hmm how difficult this technology was to develop and how much intricate calculation has to go into uh, missions like this to make them possible. So uh, all that to say, basically, I think there's a reason that in 1965, this would have seemed like something, you know, interstellar navigation would have seemed like something that required an almost supernatural uh, mechanism to explain. Mm. Though once again, the, the interesting thing being that in most cases, science fiction that you know that mechanism is the uh, is the is the thrust generation or the the travel technology on the ship that allows it to go so fast. I think that's sort of taken for granted in Dune, and instead, the the real magic seems to come in in the question of navigation. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a situation where the the spacing guild and the steersmen they they don't you know it's it's not just that they can you know travel through hyperspace it's that they can come out the other side that they can yes. do so successfully 
Now, this might, the, the idea in the Dune novels is that they travel through what, what they call fold space or folded space, which I think introduces its own hypothetical dangers. But even if we just stick to the problems we would expect to encounter traveling through real space, uh, the, the, the problem of navigating deep space is, is more complex and interesting maybe than a lot of people would have imagined because mm-hmm. – um, uh, it's it's fundamentally different and much more difficult a problem than navigation in, say, a car, right? Some of the differences are obvious. Uh, for example, if you're driving on a road, you don't really have to plot a course at all, right? The, the course is already determined by the road that has been built. You just have to know which roads to follow and how far to follow them. But even if there were no roads where you were going, say you were just driving a dune buggy over over desert wilderness, you would still have a much easier time because you'd be able to note the direction of your destination and more or less just drive straight to it. I guess, circumnavigating any obstacles you encounter along the way. You know, you might hit a a mountain or a ravine or something and you'd have to go Mm -hmm. find a way around it. But basically, you're just traveling in a uh, across a fixed map. And this is really a blessing with travel, right? The fact that you know, if you're if you're driving from one place to another, your car is the only thing that is moving in that scenario relative to the reference frame of the surface of the Earth. It's not like your starting position and your destination are usually also moving, but right. when you're when you're navigating in space, everything is moving and and moving within their own reference frames. So to travel to one planet or another. You can't just aim at the planet and then turn on the thrusters, right? If we're trying to fly to Mars, you can't say, where is Mars now? Okay, I'm going to aim dead center at that, and then I'm going to burn the rockets. You can't do that, of course, because by the time you got there, Mars would be gone. Mars is moving really fast. It's in orbit around the sun, and it would be somewhere else. So instead, you essentially have to plot an intercept course. It's not like sailing into a port but like sailing to intercept another ship that is also moving. Yeah, it's not a journey to where the target planet is. It's a journey to where the target planet will be. Now, fortunately, the paths of objects like planets are uh, strongly predictable. They, they follow an orbital course established mostly by gravity and inertia, and we've got good enough information about the orbital pathways of planets that we can predict with pretty high accuracy where they're going to be to arbitrary points out in the future. Though, of course, the farther you try to predict the motion of anything into the future, the the more inaccurate your predictions will get because of the uh, you know the the uh, cruel of of tiny uh, tiny inaccuracies building up over time. But then there's a second problem. Okay, so you you can mostly predict where a planet's going to be in the future. So you can plot a course to intercept it. You know where it's going to be. You go to where it's going to be instead of where it is now. But but there comes in a second problem. Given the vast distances involved in space travel, even tiny inaccuracies in the initial calculation of a baseline trajectory can end up sending you off course. Uh, And for a a crude analogy to understand this, imagine you are shooting an arrow at a target three feet away. If you're off by like one degree of difference when you're trying to hit the target dead center, that's not going to matter very much if it's three feet away. But if you're trying to hit a target 200 feet away, being off by a little bit is going to make a big difference. 
And so this is one reason that when we we send out uh, uncrewed space probes to do a you know enter the orbit of another planet or intercept a comet or something like that, you can't just aim them at where that planet or object is going to be and then shoot them off and let them go. You will have to perform uh, repeated course corrections. Uh, you'll have to check the position of the probe periodically while it's on the way to the destination. Figure out, you know, uh, figure out its its updated course heading based on the new information you have about where it is, and probably perform a new burn to correct the course heading because it'll be slightly off. Just because there's always going to be some level of inaccuracy that will build up over time, and uh, and and there, there's no way to be perfectly accurate when you're charting a course through space. Now, there's one other thing worth noting, which is that while real-world space agencies now have plenty of experience with deep space navigation, basically all of that experience is found not in piloting ships from inside the ships, but in programming navigational instructions for uncrewed probes. So all of the space missions with with onboard human pilots uh, have been really close to home. You know, a few trips uh, to the moon in the 60s and 70s, and then a bunch of runs between the surface of Earth and low Earth orbit. And as far as crewed ships go, that's it. You know, we, we haven't had mm -hmm. a, a somebody pilot a ship from inside that ship to Mars or anywhere else. And there are some differences in this regard. Uh, the steering of uncrewed robotic probes introduces additional difficulties. For example, the distance between Earth and the probe will always create time delays. These would be, you know... Limited by the fact that radio signals can only travel at the speed of light. So if you are trying to land a probe on the Martian moon Phobos, it's going to take some number of minutes for the information to travel each way. So you send an instruction to the probe and it might take, who knows, you know, 10 minutes for it to get there. And then uh, you got to wait another 10 minutes for it to send you feedback and for you to find out if your maneuver worked or not. But then there's another problem, which is that uh, Smith has a section of, uh, of his essay in, in The Science of Dune about the process of determining where a spacecraft actually is, which is crucial because to know how to steer, you have to calculate a trajectory, and you can't calculate an ac accurate tra trajectory if you don't know where you are. Mm. So to establish the position of a spaceship with accuracy – you need some kind of external landmark to reference, uh, kind of similar to how you would use landmarks to recognize where you are on a journey by car, except, of course, this is over vastly greater distances without roads and with need for much greater precision because of the distances that will be covered on the journey. Uh, so Smith writes that, that we usually calculate the position of space probes in our solar system with reference to landmarks such as the Earth's North Pole – or uh, he also mentions uh, a, a reference point that is the intersection of Earth's equatorial and orbital planes on January 1st, 2000, which is, of course, everybody's favorite landmark. Um, but then, <laughs> when, you know, uh, uh, so what you've got, you've got places like that and you can determine uh, uh, the, the probe's position by, say, checking the time delay on a radio transmission, uh, and especially if you can triangulate that with multiple receiver dishes. So you've got different dishes uh, around the world, and, and they can check how long it takes a radio signal to reach them. You calculate the difference between the different dishes on the Earth's surface, and you can get a pretty good idea with, with a pretty high level of accuracy where the probe is. And then you can also calculate its velocity by measuring the Doppler shift, 
in the uh, in the radio transmissions as they uh, as as they're received back on Earth. So again, the Doppler shift is uh, you know the common example is uh, how the the pitch of an ambulance siren changes as the ambulance is moving towards you or away from you. Uh, wavelengths of of different types of waves tend to get higher pitched and become more compressed if the source is moving towards you. And then they tend to stretch out and get lower pitch as the, as the source is moving away from you. And by measuring the amount of Doppler shift in the signal, you can actually tell how fast something is moving away from you. Hmm. But then, so here's another thing I thought was interesting. So uh, again, in order to calculate a spacecraft's current position and path, you need to know the last best guess of where it actually was and then from there, you need to predict forward in time using mathematical models of all the different forces acting on it. In, in a way, it's a, a kind of dead reckoning you need to do. You say, okay, at this time, I know the ship was here, and it's been traveling in this direction, this fast, with these forces acting on it. And so I, when I read that, I was like, wait a minute, the forces acting on it, would that include something other than inertia, other than the ship's initial velocity? And the answer is yes, absolutely it includes other forces, much the same way that uh, if you're trying to predict the path of a bullet, imagine you know somebody shooting at a target, you can't predict the path of the bullet uh, if you just imagine it travels forever in a perfectly straight line out of the gun barrel. You need to take into account other things like gravity pulling the bullet toward the ground and atmospheric drag slowing the bullet down over time. Something very similar is true of spacecraft. Uh, so to get a spacecraft's position and to calculate its future trajectory, you need to know not just where it started and its initial velocity, but other forces acting on it, uh, including things like gravity. Uh, the gravity is, uh, Smith says, the most important of these forces in the familiar interplanetary missions that, that we have experience with. And this would be gravitational attraction exerted by the objects in our solar system, the sun, the planets, moons, and other objects. Um, but actually, it doesn't even stop at the influence of gravity. The course of a spacecraft is diverted by other things, including, uh, well, one would just be variations in the way gravity is exerted even by known objects. So the, the example Smith gives is that gravity is not perfectly symmetrical in the way it's exerted by objects like planets and moons because these objects sometimes are kind of lumpy. And so their gravitational mm -hmm. influence is slightly asymmetrical. There might be more gravitational influence in one part of the object or in a certain direction than in other parts or in other directions. But then on top of that, you've got radiation pressure from the sun. You know, so the solar wind might be at the back of a, a of a probe that's traveling, and that's actually throwing off its trajectory from what you would imagine just if you calculated, you know, its initial velocity uh, from from the rocket burn, and then uh, and then maybe the the gravitational influence of nearby objects. You got to take radiation pressure into account. Uh, if an atmosphere is nearby, Smith says you need to note drag from the atmosphere and so forth. And Smith even gives a very strange and interesting example of a trajectory input that was once uh, considered a real mystery. It was the so-called pioneer anomaly. Uh, mm. I, I don't think I was familiar with this before. Rob, have you ever read about this? I don't remember, no. So this concerned the the pioneer probes, which you know are traveling off uh, into deep space. They're you know on, on a long interstellar trajectory now. 
but navigators kept finding that their predictions for the course of these pioneer probes was a little bit off, even after accounting for all the known forces that, that they could think of. So the question is, could this be an indication of something unknown, some some unknown force or unknown property of physics that hadn't yet been discovered? And the solution to the mystery was was not that tantalizing, but uh, but it was kind of interesting nonetheless. It turns out it's probably not anything spooky about physics. The deviation from expected acceleration was probably due to radiation pressure exerted by the power source on board the the Pioneer probe. So uh, oh, wow. inside, yeah, they've got a they've got a little internal power plant, a, a radioisotope thermoelectric generator, or RTG, and this was creating anisotropic radiation pressure that was sort of uh, meaning. So I think the pressure generated by the waste heat from this thermoelectric generator. Uh, was actually exerting a pressure that changed the course of the probe as it flew through space and changed it. It didn't, you know, the radiation didn't just go out in all directions. It was sort of, uh, it it was uh, anisotropic. So it was going in one direction more than the other directions. And this was creating an accelerating force. Yeah. And and like like you said, when you're dealing with, uh, with long distances like this, uh, just that little nudge, especially if it's unaccounted for uh, and and unexplained, uh, is enough to send you completely off course. Right. And then Smith writes in his essay that interstellar travel would probably involve even more forces acting on a spaceship to cause it to deviate from its course. And these influences would have to be understood and modeled mathematically if you were going to navigate accurately. But another question would be, again, you remember you need those reference points within the environment to calculate your position if you're traveling through space. You need to know where you are in order to, to calculate a trajectory. So what would those external landmarks be if you are traveling between stars, if you're in interstellar mm-hmm. space? Uh, well, Smith suggests the possibility of using pulsars. Um, pulsars are highly magnetized stars that spin around very fast, shooting out beams of electromagnetic radiation out of their magnetic poles. And because they rotate so fast and because they shoot these beams in selective directions, you know, it's not omnidirectional beaming. It's like mm-hmm. uh, it's beams just coming out of the, the magnetic poles. They appear from the, at the external observer's perspective to pulse or blink at these regular intervals, uh, sort of like the, you know, the spinning uh, light in a lighthouse. Mm-hmm. And the intervals of these pulses can be used to identify what pulsar you're looking at. In fact, the the pioneer plaques, remember those uh, those plaques that were designed to go on board the probes in case an alien ever looks at this and says, hey, who made this? Um, mm-hmm. They used triangulation by pulsars of specified intervals to show the galactic location of our solar system. They were like, here's where Earth is, though I think to be fair i recall reading at some point that the pulsar map on the plaque will no longer be accurate uh in the future i'm I'm not sure about that one though yeah you got to read the fine print at the bottom of the plaque uh limited time offer uh (laughs) void in tennessee but pulsars are not the only option i was actually reading a piece about this question in in space.com from may 2021 by an astrophysicist named paul sutter who is at uh, uh suny stony brook and the Flatiron institute in new york and he was talking in this uh, piece about about a paper showing that you could use pairs of stars to establish position in interstellar travel. So 
I think in theory it could be done, but uh, there there are a lot of challenges probably ahead if we actually do become an interstellar traveling species. Uh, you know, there's a lot we're going to have to figure out, and we may not have spice to aid us by by creating prescience that allows us to predict the future. But there is going to be an awful lot of uh, of highly precise calculation involved. Mm, so yeah, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to turn to computers until uh, you know we decide we sh- we can't use computers anymore. Right. <laughs> Now, I'd like to come back to the philosophy and outlook of the Spacing Guild. Um, I was reading in the Philosophy of Dune, there's a there's an article titled A Universe of Bastards by Matthew A. Butkus. And um, in it, Butkus describes the Guild as, um, as having, quote, a parasitic relationship with political power. So... In this, what he's driving, what he's uh, pointing out is that the guild wields tremendous power, even power over the emperor, but they never actually rule. They they can't actually rule. Uh, they can't risk disrupting the flow of spice. They depend on it absolutely. You take the spice away, and the guild cannot do the thing that gives them the power. Right. And he, yeah, he, he points out again that the guild has no armies, but it doesn't need to because it absolutely controls transport and trade between worlds. And I found this quite interesting uh, because it, it made me think about, you know, historically, what's, what's one of the things that armies do? Um, uh, you know, one huge role is disrupting trade. Um, mm. a bes- to besiege a walled city is to cut off its trade and travel and starve it into submission. Um, I was reading about sieges a while back, and that's that's uh, you know in the cinematic sense, we often think, well, the siege is about like breaking down walls, getting in there, and then taking over the city. But generally, it's it's more about strangling the city until the people who live there, or the, and or the people who rule there, give in and open the doors themselves. Yeah, and I think a lot of uh, the same could be said about navies. A lot of the history of navies mm-hmm. is also about interrupting trade, you know, uh, trying to block access to ports or trying to intercept trade vessels. Yeah, and so the interesting thing about the guild here is whether you're talking about blockades or besiegement, they have this power already. Like, it's, it, they don't need an army to do it. All they, they, because they, they are the only ones who can operate movement between worlds. Um, so by its very nature, the guild is in a constant state of besiegement or potential besiegement with every planet in the Imperium. Now, Buckus goes on to compare the politics of Dune to Thomas Hobbes' 1651 work Leviathan, in which the author, quote, establishes a theoretical state of existence in which there is no centralized authority, but rather a collection of individuals looking out for their own interests. Now, um, you know, you might say, well, isn't there an emperor in Dune? Well, yes, there is an emperor in Dune. But again, the, the, the emperor in the emperor's house is part of that tripod, and it's all in this, this – uh, this political balance. So it's not like the emperor actually does have absolute control over everything. Uh, again, uh, talking about the, the emperor that is present during, uh, during the first Dune book. Um, so when uh, uh, Dune, it's not individuals, but factions uh, uh, that, are, that are the ones looking after their own interests, uh, their fights, their feuds. And these fights and feuds ultimately can threaten the stability of everything. And that comes back to the way that the guild operates itself again, because the guild very much wants stability. 
at least so far as its spice uh, goes. Uh, they don't want to do anything to threaten that supply. So another interesting aspect of the Spacing Guild is to, is to come back to the way it makes decisions. Um, again, we're envisioning the steersmen, these augmented and or mutated humans who literally breathe spice in order to generate the sort of, of limited uh, um, uh, prescience necessary to travel through space and hyperspace. And a big part of this entails seeing what the most immediate dangers are and dodging them. And so, subsequently, one of Paul's biggest insights is that the guild uh, commands, you know, such power over everything, and their dependence on they, disp- they depend on spice for their power. So they end up making all of their decisions in a similar fashion. They always choose the safe, immediate path. And while this ensures survival in the short term and it keeps keeps the, the spice flowing for them, it will eventually, in the long term, lead to stagnation for you know the, the ho- entire human endeavor. Oh, this is back to the first fit versus best fit uh, algorithms. So it's interesting to think about this in terms of of cognitive bias, to sort of reverse the Leviathan scenario and go back from the faction to the individual. Um, As pointed out by Lauren and Grishma in The Safety Bias, published in Behavior Change in 2012, risk avoidance is one possible mechanism by which personality characteristics may be linked to anxiety pathology. And we see risk perceptions factor into a number of cognitive biases, including zero risk bias, in which there's a tendency to try to eliminate a particular risk, while other options would produce a greater overall risk reduction. Okay, so in a sci-fi scenario, if I understand that right, that would be saying like, okay, we're going to design a spaceship that cannot possibly be destroyed by the by plasma cannons from from another spaceship. But in mm-hmm. fact, that spaceship is very prone to uh, to like toxic buildup of of CO two in the you know atmosphere processors or whatever that you're just like uh, overly focusing on one type of risk while ignoring others. Right. Um, I think things like, you know, the war on terror are sometimes brought up as an example of this, too. Like laser focusing on one particular threat when some might argue that if that same amount of energy went into other things, uh, then you would have, uh, you know, it would would result in greater safety um, and perhaps in a more meaningful sense. Right. There's also risk compensation theory, which holds that people adjust their behavior in response to perceived risk levels. If they feel protected, they tend to be less careful. The more risk they perceive, the more careful they become. Um, and uh, I, I, was, I was reading that like one interpretation of this has to do with, um, uh, you know, like, like safety gear and things like skydiving, where uh, like skydiving from a... Um, a methods and a material sense, it has become increasingly safer to do. But that means people feel safer skydiving and they're more likely to take certain risks, that sort of thing. Hmm. It also reminds me of insights that I've read about uh, climbing, where, uh, like, like you know, mountain climbing, where the danger is not the part where you're you're hyper focused on every little thing you do. It's when certain actions become kind of automatic, and you mm-hmm. kind of, I guess, to a certain extent, you feel safe. Um, yeah, you're, you're going to be more careful if you feel the danger. 
But uh, but coming back to this this idea of um, a risk compensation theory, I was wondering how it might equate to the guild. So via their abilities, they're constantly not only confronting simulations of possible doom, which of course uh, us normal humans do all the time. You know, we engage in in um, in simulating possible outcomes uh, that are positive, but also ones that are negative, and that can lead into a sort of fantasizing about potential doom. Uh, but the guild, they seem to go beyond that. They have actual visions of dooms that they have to cleverly dodge as they navigate um, either you know, through space travel or politically. Uh, so do they end up giving into these visions of doom and grow increasingly careful? Or at least in some cases, do they feel safe and protected by their use of the spice? Hmm. Now, I think I think probably with the Space and Guild, we're talking about uh, the overly careful side of things here. That seems to be in keeping with the safest path of the Guild and so forth and the way they're characterized. But perhaps the comfort afforded by the Spice allows them to engage in some bolder maneuvers, at least so far as it doesn't threaten the supply of Spice. Uh, uh, it seems to be a constant. Anything that threatens the Spice, that's just a no-go. Like like almost zero, zero risk can be taken uh, when it comes to that supply. Chain. Right. So it, it's interesting with the, the Bene Gesserit and the Spacing Guild um, because on a very basic level, and, and I think that's one of the great things about Dune is that you can look at it at, at different levels. On one level, it's like these are just it's sci-fi magic versus sci-fi science, right? It's witches versus um, techno wizards of a sort, you know? Um, but then it also it goes a lot deeper than that. It gets into like the ways they think um, you know, short-term and long-term thinking and how they engage in risk, et cetera. Yeah, I didn't think about that. So you're setting up the contrast that the Bene Gesserit being concerned with politics are very – they're very much engaged in long-term strategic thinking, whereas the Spacing Guild uh, being very uh, immediate task-oriented are just like they're thinking one step ahead always. Yeah, like the Bene Gesserit, for instance, were told, you know, that they will actually make sure that things are inserted into native religions on various worlds uh, that give them an out. That like, uh, right. like, oh yeah, well, in our in our traditions, it does say that if a um, if a strange woman from another planet shows up, we are supposed to give her a spaceship. Uh, yeah. you know, um, <laughs> that might come simplified. in handy a thousand years from now. <laughs> yeah, it might come in handy a thousand years from now. So we're going to do it. Right. Um, whereas the guild, they would be asking different questions. They're like, well, does that, what does it stay, mean for our survival one minute from now? And what does it mean regarding our supply of the spice? And I, I saw some papers online. I didn't really get into these so much, but there was one I noticed that was looking at uh, themes of addiction in Dune and Lord of the Rings, uh, you know, because they both deal with, I, I guess, addiction to some extent. You could say the, the, the ring is an addiction. Uh, the power that comes with the ring is an addiction. And, of course, the guild is, uh, in a very real sense, addicted to the spice. Um, but um, and and makes its its choices in the way that I guess could be comparable to some sort of personal addiction level. Uh, at any rate, just another example of all the different levels at which you might engage with Dune. Got to engage them all. <laughs> all right. Well, we're going to go ahead and close it out there. Uh, I think this will be it for for this journey into the Dune universe. But hey, when uh, Dune Part Two comes out, maybe we'll dive back in. Maybe it'll be something else we get a hankering to discuss. Oh, I'm sure there will be more. 
And of course, we'd love to hear from everyone out there. You have insight uh, into any of this based on your own experience with the, the Dune universe, no matter which path that ends up taking, you know, the original novels, the sequels and prequels, the movies, the video games. We didn't even get into the video games. Um, video games. Uh, oh, yeah. Wasn't yeah. There, there's like a Command and Conquer style game, but it was Dune. Yeah, various real-time strategy type things. I never actually played any of them, but uh, but I I've, I remember looking at stuff about them, and they look cool. Um, there's also a big board game presence. There's, of course, the classic uh, Dune board game, which I I um, I got a copy of. Man, I got it during the pandemic, so it's it's never been played. And there are, <laughs> there are a couple of uh, of newer Dune board games that also look very exciting, especially since they both have uh, single player modes which, um, you know, is, is certainly a little easier to achieve if maybe not as socially engaging. Anyway, whatever your experience, if you have thoughts, write in. We'd love to hear from you. In the meantime, if you'd like to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you can find them in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. You'll get that wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, we have core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays, listener mail on Mondays, artifact on Wednesday, and on Friday, we do a little uh, Weird House Cinema. That's our time to set aside most of the serious concerns and just talk about a strange film. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.